This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Time now to turn our attention to the United States. And making headlines over the weekend, former U.S. President Donald Trump striking again. He is not to be silenced and is creeping back into the news. Earlier, he tried to withhold documents from Congress related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol back when he was still president. But on Friday, the White House granted access to the requested documents about the event from the National Archives, a move that Trump says he will fight using executive privilege. Yeah, and he's also wasting no time getting on with his political agenda. He held a rally on Saturday in Iowa. Uh, Iowa, of course, is also the state whose caucuses have kicked off the presidential nomination calendar for the past 50 years. He did well in 2016 and 2020 uh, for that state. Um, and that appearance, of course, uh, sparking more speculation, perhaps a 2024 White House run. Mm. And another development in U.S. politics. The Senate has approved the short-term solution that will allow the U.S. to avoid defaulting on its bills in a close 50 to 48 vote. This happened on Thursday evening after weeks of partisan fighting. But while the retrieve might give Democrats enough time to raise the debt ceiling, it does come with a warning from Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell that there won't be a next time. Uh, Joining us to talk about all of these developments in the U.S. is Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief at The Straits Times. Now, first of all, Nirmal, let's talk about what Trump said about using executive privilege to fight the fact that the White House has granted access to requested documents about the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Does Trump have a legal basis to assert executive privilege? Good morning. Uh, Executive privilege was codified in 1972 during the Watergate scandal when the Supreme Court acknowledged the need to preserve the confidentiality of presidents' communications with their aides. But at the time, the court denied Richard Nixon unqualified privilege and ordered him to release secret White House tapes. And that was decisive in his downfall. He resigned soon after that. So yes, Donald Trump has a legal basis, but it is not an unqualified privilege. So he does have to be careful because if this ends up in the Supreme Court, he could be forced to release at least some of what is being demanded. The argument for doing that is that executive privilege cannot be used to hide wrongdoing. What Donald Trump is likely to do is to file a lawsuit against the National Archives seeking to bar them from releasing the information. That would be heard in lower courts, which legal experts say would almost certainly deny him the motion. So it would very likely end up in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court could, of course, refuse to hear it or take it on and hand down a judgment. Now, the Supreme Court has nine justices, and that includes three nominated by him. That is Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch. And while this is not to suggest an automatic bias, a lot of people will inevitably say that is the case if it comes to that and the court rules in his favor. The Supreme Court is widely considered to have veered towards the conservative, which was the Republican agenda all along, which Donald Trump enacted. 
Okay, now a couple of moving parts for this next question, so do bear with me. First, Trump said that the Biden administration was using the investigation to undercut his future political prospects. But at the same time, on Saturday, he held a positive rally in Iowa. And obviously, rumors of a potential 2024 presidential election run came out, right? Um, at the same time, he also endorsed Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley for re-election in the 2022 midterms. Nirmal, what kind of impact will this investigation have on his campaign? And after this, does he still stand a chance? Does he still stand a shot at a second presidency in 2024? Yes, it won't make a difference to his base, which believes he actually won the election and the Democrats and everyone else conspired to rob him and put Joe Biden in office. It is a cult-like belief. And the more pressure he faces, the more they will say he is the victim. And he plays that role to great effect, the role of the aggrieved, and it resonates with his base. Now, if all this plays out and some or all records are released, and that clearly shows he and his aides plotted and planned the January 6th insurrection or allowed it to go ahead or had an actual scheme to make it look like there was cheating in the election, then what happens next depends on whether that is enough to file some charge against him. If you take Richard Nixon as a precedent, he resigned ahead of impeachment and that was that. Donald Trump, of course, has been impeached already, but not convicted. In fact, the White House website actually states that Nixon was regarded as a quote-unquote elder statesman. Now, there may be some technicality that prevents Donald Trump from filing his nomination, but it is hard to see that happening. And by the way, there is a lot of speculation here over whether he will, in fact, run. He keeps teasing it, but he hasn't confirmed it. But that is his way of keeping the focus on himself and playing a media that frankly laps it up like a cat chasing a laser point, and of course also keeping the Democrats off balance. It is quite clear, if you know anything at all about Donald Trump, that he fully intends to run, and all this is just drama. Now, Nirmal, Steve Bannon, a longtime Trump advisor, says that he will not cooperate with the subpoena issued to him over the incident. We have to remember that there are three other parties who were served with the same subpoena. What are the implications of non-cooperation here? Well, yes, so it is Steve Bannon and former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, social media boss Dan Scavino and Kashyap Patel, who was former Chief of Staff to the Acting Secretary of Defense in the final weeks of the Trump administration. These four have more shaky grounds to invoke executive privilege, but they could try. If they do not comply with these subpoenas, the January 6th committee could then file a civil suit seeking a court order to direct them to comply. Or they could also decide to hold them in contempt and refer the issue to the Justice Department for a criminal prosecution. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Straight Times U.S. Bureau Chief Nirmal Ghosh is on the line with us this Monday morning. Uh, Nirmal, on to the U.S. debt ceiling. There was a debate on this where Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell wrote to President Biden and warned that he would not aid the Democrats again in raising the debt limit. It does look like it's another sign of Democrats' weakness in leading Congress. Your thoughts, because the Democrats have rejected reconciliation as an option to lift the cap. So what are the solutions are available? They've got to what, December? Uh, is this enough time, Normal? 
The straightforward solution is for the Republicans to relent and raise the debt ceiling. Essentially, as someone wrote, they are playing Russian roulette with the economy. There is a lot at stake. If the debt ceiling is not lifted, the Treasury would default on various bonds, notes and bills that it must float to cover the country's bills, which can't be covered by taxes alone. The budget has been in deficit for 20 years. The last president to balance it was apparently Bill Clinton. So it is not a great idea to raise the debt ceiling, but they have to because failure would mean massive defaulting all over the place and the economy would crash and that would send tremors across the global financial system. Now, some Republicans may want this to force a recession which will make Joe Biden look bad and dent any Democrat candidate's chances in 2024. But it would also be hard for the Republicans to escape the blame for it. Basically, they, the Republicans, would be seen as playing with fire. Now, as to whether there is enough time, they have no choice. Some of this may depend on the passage or non-passage of the big infrastructure and social spending bills, which would raise taxes on the wealthy and on big corporations. But those are also still in the air. So I'm afraid there is going to be a lot of uncertainty and drama, which has become almost the norm in the U.S. system. And the global financial system has to factor that in and deal with it. Amid all of this, Nirmal, Singapore Senior Minister and Coordinating Minister for Social Policies, Dharman Shanmugaratnam, will be visiting D.C. and New York this week. Singapore-U.S. relations have always been mostly positive and stable. What can we expect from SM Dharman's visit? Well, he will meet with the Treasury Secretary, with the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, with Singaporeans in the financial sector. One can expect there will be talk of trade, talk of geopolitical tensions and the ramifications for the global economy and so forth. The CPTPP may come up, that is the successor to the Trans-Pacific Partnership or TPP, which the US helped to negotiate. But Donald Trump pulled the US out of it in 2017. And while many in the business community here would like to see the U.S. rejoin, it is still politically a hard thing to sell voters as public opinion has in recent years veered against globalization, which is something that Donald Trump sensed. U.S. Trade Representative Tai spoke recently about restarting trade negotiations with China, but she also said the reality has changed since the TPP was created. So while I would not rule it out, I would not expect any sudden announcement that the U.S. will join the CPTPP. The visit has to be seen in a broader context as well. It is part of stepped-up high-level engagement after a long period of only virtual engagement. In recent weeks, we have had Minister of Foreign Affairs Vivian Balakrishnan here. He attended the UN General Assembly in person after a gap of a year. He then came to D.C. for a working visit and met Secretary of State Tony Blinken and others. He renewed a third country training program with the United States. Then last week, we had Minister of Trade and Industry Gan Kim Yong in town as well. He met with the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, and he spoke at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So we are seeing a reaffirmation of the U.S.-Singapore relationship, which is a close one. Singapore is seen as a valuable partner in the region, and Singapore's interpretation and advice and perspective on what is going on in the region is taken seriously in D.C. What the last year and a half has taught us is that virtual meetings are all very well, but there is really nothing that can replace actual physical meetings in which there is an actual connection, there is body language, there are nuances that are missing in virtual communications. And this also sends a signal that Singapore is opening up in a calibrated manner and engaging. 
Last week, we saw Minister Gan Kim Yong speak about a vaccinated travel lane or VTL with the United States. And Prime Minister Lee spoke about that as well later in Singapore. We don't have any specific information yet on any new agreements that may emerge from the senior minister's visit. But broadly, this is the resumption of business as usual and close consultations, which used to be frequent, but took a long pause because of the pandemic. Thanks so much uh, for that. We've been speaking with U.S. Bureau Chief for the Straits Times, Nirmal Ghosh. Take care and stay safe, my friend. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.